for most of us listening to this Ohio Farm Bureau podcast, electricity has always just been there. You flip on the light switch, the light comes on. But if we learned anything over Christmas, it was that our power grid may not be as stable as it used to be. Coming up, we'll visit with Pat O'Laughlin, president and CEO of Ohio's Electric Cooperatives. He'll talk about what's really happening behind the scenes of Ohio's power grid and what he and his members are talking with lawmakers at the state and federal level about to get things back on track. And speaking of policy, we have a lot going on at Ohio Farm Bureau at both levels of government. We'll talk with our director of state and national policy, Brandon Kern, about efforts being made in Columbus and in Washington on behalf of Ohio Farm Bureau members. But first... Today's farms, ranches, and agribusinesses are increasingly sophisticated and professional, but even the slightest disruption can be costly. Mitigating that risk is why a growing number of ag business owners and operators are turning to telematics. The technology helps keep the wheels turning and your operation moving. That's why at Nationwide, they're dedicated to providing cutting-edge telematic solutions. Find out more on how to protect your next at aginsightcenter.com. That's aginsightcenter.com. This Ohio Farm Bureau podcast, focusing on the reliability of electricity in Ohio, starts after this. Farm families like yours are growing their businesses to ensure their best farm futures. Farm Bureau helps your competitive advantage by advocating for members, connecting you to like-minded entrepreneurs, and providing you with insights and business solutions to grow your bottom line. Add to that health care benefits, financial and insurance needs, market intel, and legislative, regulatory, legal risk management tools, and it's easy to see how Farm Bureau is feeding your need for new ideas. Renew your membership or become a member today. Learn more at OhioFarmBureau.org. Welcome back to the Ohio Farm Bureau podcast. I'm Ty Higgins. The topic of reliability of electricity has become increasingly concerning to Ohio's co-ops as the number of baseload power generation sites has been reduced dramatically in the past 15 years from 21 coal plants now to just four across the Buckeye State. Joining us is the president and CEO of Ohio's Electric Cooperatives, Pat O'Laughlin. Pat, first of all, tell us about OEC and what you're all about. Uh, We provide service to 25 distribution cooperatives that are providing service to our members in 77 of 88 counties across Ohio, uh, in both rural and suburban and exurban areas of Ohio. Uh, Overall, we serve about a million people in the state of Ohio with generation service from our power plants, as well as the distribution services that each of our member cooperatives provides to their local communities. The thought of unreliable electricity is something that many of us in Ohio just can't really wrap our minds around, right? Uh, You turn on a switch, that light comes on. How close are we to not having the reliability and what's causing the issue? Well, Ty, most of us like myself that worked in the industry a long time have spent most of our careers trying to not have people think about or worry about uh, where their electricity is coming from. That's kind of been our job for a long time. But recently we've had a confluence of things that have come together that have put us in a situation that that I've never really experienced before where we currently have to worry about, do we have adequate supply to meet the needs of everybody's electricity demands, particularly when we have extreme weather events like we saw say over Christmas Eve here in Ohio, uh, we saw last summer and, and you know, we live in Ohio, it happens from time to time. And that is where our grid is really getting strained today and we're having to worry about, do we have enough supply and what are we gonna do about it going forward? I mentioned the reduction of baseload power generation sites. Uh, How have those coal plants evolved over the years as far as emissions go? Yeah, so our 
we have spent as uh, Buckeye Power and the Ohio Electric Cooperatives over a billion dollars cleaning up the coal-fired power plants that we still operate. Across the state of Ohio, as recently as 2009, we had 21 coal-fired power plants that operated in Ohio. Some of those were older and not as good. Some of them didn't invest in environmental controls like we have. But today we're down to only four. Uh, and that's a big reduction in our capability that coal brings to be able to respond up and down as, as demand changes, to have fuel available in the dead of winter when sometimes natural gas supply is in short supply, and to be able to respond to changing demands. Whereas wind and solar, which we've added a decent amount of that over the same last 15 years or so, uh, is intermittent in nature, meaning that we only get solar power when the sun's shining, we don't get it after dark, we only get wind power when the wind's blowing. Uh, it's great when it's working, but um, people use electricity when they need it, and that's they don't. those two don't always line up. Is there an agenda in place that we're not hearing more about this coal uh, evolution, I guess I would say, into uh, you know being better for the environment? What, what's holding that messaging back? Well, we've made a lot of progress on the environment, and um, I think people just assume that we could just do anything. Maybe, maybe that's the case. We've moved a little too far, a little too fast, and now we're starting to see strains on the grid that we, we really hadn't seen before. And I guess we didn't really know how, how close we had to get, but now we've seen at Christmas Eve, we were uh, we had a cold weather snap and we were within uh, minutes of having to initiate rolling blackouts, which imagine what that'd be like on Christmas morning. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody, right? Um, and nine other states actually did experience that in our nearby area. So we know now that we're at that point where we're straining it. And it's not just the Ohio cooperatives that are saying it. Um, the North American Electric Reliability Corporation that's responsible for grid oversight across North America is now sounding alarm saying, look, we've gone too far too fast. We, we now have elevated risks that we've never seen before. Uh, the PGM interconnection, which is the grid operator for this part of the country, saying a very similar thing. The, the mid-continent independent system operator for areas just to the west of us saying the same kinds of things. And, you know, you ask yourself, well, how did we get here? Well, we've, we've had a a disorderly and rapid retirement of some of our baseload coal-fired power plants that have served us for decades. And it's really been a confluence of a couple things. One, we've seen more and more environmental policies that are pushing up costs without really doing a lot for the environment. And people are questioning whether they want to continue to invest money in a coal-fired power plant that still produces that. And so some operators have chosen to close them down. The other thing that we've seen is our grid operators and the, the policies that we have economically are not rewarding uh, baseload power plants that provide the reliability services for the services that they do provide. And now we're starting to see, you know, we, we're going to have to place a value on that if we're going to get the reliability services that we need. And we, right now we can only get from those baseload fossil fired power plants. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? You have the market issue, and then you have the regulatory problems. Uh, there's yeah. there's, a, there's some differences there, but some of them go hand in hand. Yeah, and, and the problem is they both kind of come together at the same time, and, that, and that's what's really put us in this pinch right now. And so we ask ourselves, well, what can we do to get out of this, right? That's, that's really the question one for us as suppliers. We want to make sure that we can provide reliable electricity going forward. Um, and like a lot of problems, you know, when you're in a hole, the first thing you need to do is stop digging, right? So 
Um, what we'd like to see is a little bit of a pause on the environmental regulations that are causing some of these disorderly shutdowns to happen quicker than we expected. And at the same time, the, the policy folks like PJM Interconnection that are responsible for the market solutions and how we get compensated are in the midst of reforming their market because they've realized they've got a policy mismatch with what they need and what they're paying for right now. So that's going to take a little bit of time, but that's a, that's a process that's underway right now. Much like Ohio Farm Bureau, you do policy work at the state and federal level. I noticed uh, on your social media that uh, Ohio's electric cooperatives and their members uh, made it to Columbus to visit with lawmakers about some of these very important issues. Uh, what's the messaging for legislators here in Ohio, and, and how does that differ from what's being talked about inside the Beltway in Washington? Yeah, that's a great question. So on the federal level, that's really where a lot of the environmental regulations are coming from, and that's where we're talking to our federal legislators about, let's make sure we've got a balance here because people need electricity as well as a clean environment. We can have both, but we got to keep that balance. Here in Ohio, the messaging is really more about the market solutions and what's the state of Ohio's role. Right now, we depend on the PGM interconnection. All of Ohio is within that grid operator's uh, purview. And so really, they need to work with other states, West Virginia, Kentucky, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, uh, New Jersey, all Illinois, this, Indiana, the states that are affected by our region and work together with this grid operator, make sure that we have economic policies in place that are paying for the things that we really need. Many of our members are part of your cooperative network. Uh, what can they do as consumers, uh, as the general public? What is your call to action for people listening and watching today? Yeah, well, the first thing is um, you got to take care of yourself first. So as, as we do uh, experience extreme weather, you do what you can to conserve. It's always better. We save money by doing that. We also maybe are saving uh, worse outcomes that we'd like to have. So number one, make sure you're doing everything you can to be efficient at times when we do have extreme weather events. And number two, I think we're at the point where you're going to have to vote for these issues. You're going to have to think about what's in my interest. Um, you, you guys deal with it all the time about farm issues. Well, the same thing is true on energy policy. You got to think about what's in our interest on energy policy. And we've for a long time supported reliable, affordable, environmentally responsible electricity supply. We can do it all, but it isn't going to just happen. We've, we've got to have the right policies in place, which means you got to have the, light, the right legislative leaders in place to make it happen. How can someone find out more about Ohio's electric cooperatives? Yeah, so uh, we have a website, uh, ohioelectriccooperatives.com. And uh, we also are in touch with our members through our magazine, Ohio Cooperative Living. You can see that also out there on, on the internet. Uh, we are right now putting out on our Facebook account, uh, Ohio Electric Cooperatives uh, videos to talk a little bit about this, similar to what we're doing today, and a little bit of bite-sized pieces to talk about some of the issues that are out there in energy policy and that affect electric cooperative member consumers. Pat O'Laughlin, President and CEO of Ohio's Electric Cooperatives, joining us on the Ohio Farm Bureau podcast. Great to see you and appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ty. I appreciate the time. There's a lot happening on the policy front here at Ohio Farm Bureau as well. We'll get you caught up on what's happening here in Columbus and in D.C. after this on the Ohio Farm Bureau podcast. Farm Bureau Bank has built its entire existence around the lifestyle and needs of farmers. They're here to help grow traditions, give back to agricultural communities, and offer financial convenience for your unique way of life. Visit farmbureau.bank or call one of their personal bankers today, 800-492-3276 to learn more. 
That's farmbureau.bank or 800-492-3276. From sunup to sundown, Farm Bureau Bank is committed to serving you. With everything going on at the state and federal level, I'm surprised to get a couple of minutes with Brandon Kern, Senior Director of State and National Policy with Ohio Farm Bureau for our Policy Points. Uh, BK, as I mentioned, uh, there's a lot going on. We have uh, budget happening in Columbus. We've got a farm bill happening uh, in the nation's capital. Those are some of the big items that we'll talk about, but uh, other things to cover as well. Let's start right here in Ohio with this state budget, something that uh, happens every other year and uh, something that really kind of got started out of the gate pretty quickly, but still a long way to go. Where are we at in the process? And what are some of the things we're talking about with legislators when it comes to Ohio state budget? Yeah, so this process got started in February of this year when the governor introduced his uh, budget proposal for members of the state legislature to consider. Obviously, they are going to uh, take the reins of the process from there after the governor, governor makes his proposal. And, and so where we stand right now is the House um, introduced a bill um, based on the governor's recommendations, and then they've had a whole series of hearings and conversations, and they've, they've made their mark now on the budget and have passed it. Uh, just recently, and uh, has now sitting in the in the state senate, where the senate uh, will you know look at what the house has done, make changes to it from there based on what their priorities are, and then we'll all come together uh, at some point here in June for the conference committee to to hash out what the final state operating budget is going to look like. So right now we're you know a little more than halfway through the process, I guess maybe right at halfway of the process as the senate's just getting underway with their hearings this week. And um, but, uh, you know, hopefully by July 1, we'll have a state operating budget. Aside from that, uh, other bills we're keeping an eye on, including the very first one introduced in this new session, House Bill 1, working on some tax provisions, some things in that that we liked, some things that we didn't. Talk to us about where House Bill 1 is now and some of the things that have been changed with Ohio Farm Bureau's involvement. Yeah. So House Bill 1 was a comprehensive, is a comprehensive uh, tax reform proposal. It includes uh, a proposal to decrease income taxes in the state. Um, the The ultimate goal under the, the bill is introduced to get to a flat tax on the income tax side, uh, something that we're not necessarily opposed to at all at Farm Bureau. Uh, over the years, the legislature has made a number of uh, changes to the income tax, reducing uh, income taxes, you know, pretty methodically over the last uh, eight years now, six to eight years. And, you know, for a lot of our uh, farmers who are small businesses themselves, organizes pass-through entities who pay their business taxes through the income tax structure, uh, those reforms and, and reducing the tax burden through the income taxes has been a, a positive thing. Um, however, the other uh, portion of the proposal was to, uh, I think, in an effort to create a little bit of a pay for for that income tax reduction, um, was to eliminate something called the property tax rollback program that we have in Ohio. And uh, the property tax rollback has its history way back to when the income tax was first implemented in Ohio. And it was you know, part of a compromise um, where policymakers back then in the 1950s said, we're going to create an income tax, but a part of what we're going to do with the revenue that we generate from that income tax is make a commitment that we're going to reduce uh, the burden of property taxes in the form we're going to give some of that revenue that we generate at the state level back to local governments and reduce uh, individuals' property tax 
bills by 10%. That's that's essentially the property tax rollback. Uh, so the, the proposal in this bill was to eliminate the property tax rollback. And that would have a major, major impact for residential and agricultural property tax uh, payers across the state. Uh, one estimate had uh, the, the fiscal uh, impact increasing property taxes for residential and agricultural rate payers uh, to the tune of $929 million across the state. Uh, so we're not talking about a small change here, a very large property tax increase would have resulted um, if that's if that would go into play. So, uh, you know, we, uh, we voiced our strong opposition to that particular provision of the bill. And our members have, have responded as well. Um, we know that our members have been reaching out uh, via phone calls, emails to legislators' offices. Uh, we know uh, through a system that we're using here to help our members do that through our, our advocacy and action system that uh, we've had uh, to the pushing uh, 700 uh, of our members have reached out using just our system that we that we know of and and sending over you know 1500 messages now. Uh, in the forms of emails and uh, outreach on social media and, and so on and so forth to members of the legislature voicing their concern. And so we've had a great reaction from the grassroots uh, portion of our membership that are directly advocating for this issue as, as in addition to our, our government affairs team who's been working very hard at the state house on this as well. So um, we, we think that we've, we've made uh, a mark here and in terms of the feedback we're getting, it seems like uh, legislators have heard the message and that bill has not uh, moved forward. And, and, and we're kind of hearing that the, the property tax provision is um, not, not very popular uh, with legislators based on, on the response largely uh, from Ohio Farm Bureau members from across the state. So uh, we're, we're feeling better about where that is at this point. I'm glad you mentioned those action alerts, something that, uh, as you mentioned, is fairly new for our members to get involved in in a great way where a couple of clicks uh, sends those messages to lawmakers in your uh, particular districts. Uh, you mentioned the one for uh, this property tax, House Bill 1, uh, also one for eminent domain. And, and those are two words that get our members pretty worked up pretty quickly uh, in rural Ohio. We tried to get something through last year uh, with eminent domain. Didn't quite get it to the finish line, but reintroduced here in 2023 new legislation for eminent domain reform. Uh, tell us what that looks like and where we are in that process. Yeah, we knew we knew our the introduction of the bill last year would probably be a, a just a starting point for uh, conversations and negotiations over this issue moving into this new General Assembly this year. Um, and it, it really served the, the purpose of getting the conversation going last year and to have that bill reintroduced this year. So working with state legislators, you know, th this issue is all about, um, you know, what we're talking to legislators about is there, there's really a need to create a system that's not overwhelming for a landowner to work through. Um, you know, right now we really believe that if you are a landowner and you're faced with an eminent domain taking, uh, the legal system that you have to go through uh, is very convoluted. It has multiple steps that you have to go through. And I think a lot of folks, uh, when faced with what that means, and, you, and you're talking about a year, more than a year of working with a lawyer, working through the legal system just to defend uh, your right to have a fair compensation for a taking um, that's necessary. 
is is you know not right it's, it's quite frankly not right and 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 so what we're advocating for just some reforms you know our message here is we're not trying to thwart economic development we're not trying to stop eminent domain we understand that this is you know in the end sometimes a necessary evil that needs to be used um, but what we are the message we are saying that this needs to be fair um, and it needs to be easier for landowners to work through uh, we're the only state in the nation the only state in the nation that does not have a process known as inverse condemnation. And, and the easy way to explain that is just that streamlined process of having a very clear legal path for the landowner themselves uh, to work through and have one court jurisdiction, look at the issue, make a ruling, you know, ensure that the taking is necessary, ensure that the compensation that's been offered to that loan landowner is fair and adequate uh, under the constitutional uh, provisions that, that protect landowners uh, when eminent domain does need to be used. And, and so, you know, that's our message. That's what this bill is all about. And so we're, we're working through a process right now. Anything controversial like this has a lot of stakeholders. Um, and, you know, certainly there's some cynicism from some of the stakeholders out there who have eminent domain power, obviously, um, you know, from their side of things, they never want uh, to make something harder on them to, to work through. Right now, they have a, a pretty sweet deal um, and a pretty easy system to work through. But we're making the argument that this process, uh, again, needs to be easier to use and, and needs to be fair for landowners. You know, a couple of the other things that we're advocating for in this legislation, if, if you're a, a landowner and you successfully challenge uh, an eminent domain taking and it's found by the court to, to have been improper, you ought to be entitled to have your legal fees paid for. Why should you have to have that cost come out of your pocket just to defend yourself when the process uh, wasn't followed properly? Um, one of the other things we're talking about, we should penalize coercive actions. You know, if, if entities are being coercive in the process um, with the landowner, then they should be penalized for that. It should be a disincentive uh, to do those types of things. And so we think this is a very uh, common sense, very straightforward reforms. Um, but, but there's a process here that we've got to work through from a legislative standpoint because there are a lot of stakeholders involved. So we think we're making progress there and, and uh, we'll, we're going to keep working at it hard. But our members have responded, again, very similar to the House Bill 1 action alert. We've had an action alert on this and our, our members have responded and told uh, members of the state legislature that they, they feel that this, these reforms are important for this, for this process. That's just for Ohio. And now you have frequent flyer miles back and forth to Washington because there's so many things happening at the federal level. Of course, the softball is the farm bill. We have to get that done by the September 30th deadline. You can talk about that a little bit. But there are so many other things happening inside the Beltway that people don't even think would have a direct impact on agriculture that certainly would. Yeah. My uh, my vehicle knows how to drive itself to John Glenn International Airport at this point, <laughs> park itself. And then I just kind of get on and, and, and go and, and go through the terminal and, and head to D.C. We're we're probably in D.C. We've, we've been in D.C. Uh, more in the past six months and then, you know, we'll be throughout this year with some of our members, uh, our, our board member leaders, then then certainly what we normally are. But, you know, for a very important reason, we have a farm bill being negotiated by Congress. Um, we had our leadership team, including our president, Bill Patterson, and, and Vice President Cy Prettyman and, and Treasurer Chris Weaver, along with Adam Sharp, our executive, and myself, and our Vice President of Public Policy on the staff side, uh, Jack Irvin. We were all in Washington just a couple of weeks ago 
uh, and did a number of, of meetings on the Hill with members of the Ohio congressional delegation talking about the farm bill, how progress on negotiations is coming, getting their feedback on what they're hearing uh, in the, during the hearing process that they're going through right now, both uh, the Senate and House agriculture committees having a lot of hearings on the farm bill, starting to hear about what issues are out there and what are what's important to the agriculture community to get right in this in this piece of legislation. So, uh, you know, some of the things we're talking about certainly uh, bringing to the attention uh, the importance of crop insurance in this program. You know, we if anything else, you know, we tell Congress just don't mess up crop insurance. Right now, we have a very strong crop insurance program. Um, now is not the time to make making any changes to crop insurance. Um, that is, you know, the number one risk management tool for farmers. Very important for food security in our country. And so we're just telling them, don't mess up crop insurance is, is the number one message. But there's some other things too, that, you know, through the experience we've had in the last couple of years with uh, skyrocketing input prices. I think a lot of farmers are sharing that perspective of what that impact has has been. Uh, potentially looking at more resources with those Title I programs that help support uh, price stabi stability for our main commodity uh, crops. Uh, that's one of the things that we're talking about. Um, commodity price has been really good. One of the things we're pointing out, commodity price has been really good, but in input prices have, have gone up with them. And so, you know, farming is a margin, uh, a small margin uh, business. And so, you know, one of the things we're telling farmers, you can't just look at the equate or excuse me, uh, members of Congress, policymakers, is you can't just look at uh, strong commodity prices because the margin hasn't been great when those input prices have gone up as much as they have as well. And so we're we're seeing a little moderation on the input price uh, side right now, which is a good thing, but commodity prices are trickling down too. So talking to them about you know price stability and and the important programs that we have in that title title one of the farm bill and potentially trying to put some more resources into those as well. But those are probably our top two priority issues that we're talking to members of Congress when it comes to the farm. But there are lots of different provisions of the farm. Well, bill. we had a great seat uh, there in Washington for the county president's trip uh, with the staffers of those that write the farm bill. And yeah. just having those conversations kind of proved that uh, as much as uh, the farm bill is typically nonpartisan, there could be a little bit more partisanship in the creation of this farm bill. And it may not get done by that deadline. Yeah, we're starting to hear that more and more. Um, members of Congress and, and key staff members kind of seem to be trying to set expectations that uh, we might not get a five-year farm bill in place by the September deadline this year. Now, I think everybody's very confident that there'll be Congress will be able to come together and at least do an extension of the current farm bill. Everybody understands the importance of not letting these programs lapse because we go back, you know, the, one of the points we've made is if the, if the farm bill lapse, we go back to 1930s era policy, which obviously does not work for modern agriculture. So I think we're very confident that um, at least an extension, short-term ex short extension of the current farm bill uh, will be able to be put in place. We're not going to see the farm bill lapse, but whether we get a new five-year authorization by the September deadline, we're, we're, we're definitely starting to hear that as Congress is taking up a number of controversial issues, maybe that might not happen. Um, and, you know, we have a very strong farm bill right now. So if in the end we have to go through the extension route to buy some more time to, to get into a, a better political environment so that we can actually hash out a five-year uh, farm bill, that wouldn't be the end of the world, I think, for our producers. 
other pieces of legislation include uh, things to do with the budget. Of course, we're hearing about that debt ceiling now. Yeah. Uh, labor, a uh, part of these conversations, dairy uh, pricing reform, precision ag, biofuels, uh, all of it happening right now and all of it tied to this industry. Absolutely. And, you know, the debt ceiling debate right now, obviously, the, the focus of what Congress is working on, you know, you're hearing a lot in the headlines and in and, and the news media about, you know, potentially by June 1, as early as June 1, the federal government may not be able uh, to pay all of its debts if the debt ceiling is not increased. Um, and, and that's going to have broad ramifications for the, the economy uh, in general. But as a part of what the negotiation process is, there's key you know, policies that impact the farm bill, quite frankly, um, that are a part of this. So uh, there's an, a, a debate over the new nutrition programs at the federal level and should there be work requirements included in the nutrition programs. Of course, the nutrition uh, programs constitute the largest component of the farm bill. And so these negotiations are happening right now or the debt ceiling have a direct impact on, on you know, what we're going to see for negotiations on the farm bill as well. You know, one of the things that almost held up the House passage of their version of the debt ceiling bill uh, was was biofuels. Uh, we had a number of, of Midwestern farm state uh members of Congress say they weren't going to vote for the debt ceiling increase uh, proposal uh, because the original proposal had the elimination of biofuel tax credits in it. And obviously biofuel is very, very important uh, to Midwestern farm states uh, like Iowa and, and so on and so forth. So it almost held up the House's ability to pass their version of the debt ceiling increase. And, and so now they have got that done. Those, those tax credits were uh, protected in the end. And, and But now we've got this negotiation playing out between the White House and House leadership uh, and Senate leadership over what the this final product looks like. So it's going to, it's going to, you know, one of the terms I love to use is it's going to suck the oxygen out of everything else that's going on potentially in Washington. I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing um, a little bit of delay on the farm bill as well, because, you know, we've got high stakes issues like this going on in Congress right now as well. We'll keep you updated online at ohiofarmbureau.org. And of course, we'll do more policy points updates uh, as uh, we get opportunities to. In fact, the next one we already have planned out is going to look at that state budget and uh, go through line by line that impact agriculture, what Ohio Farm Bureau likes about it, and what we have some concerns about as well. That's all coming up uh, next month here on Policy Points with Brandon Kern, Senior Director of State and National Policy with Ohio Farm Bureau. My friend, always great to see you. Always, Ty. Always. Thank you for listening to the Ohio Farm Bureau podcast. You can hear previous episodes online at ohiofarmbureau.org. And of course, keep up with us by following, liking, or subscribing online wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ty Higgins. We'll see you down the road.